There were two things that collided at a particular time, right around the age of 40. So you could say I had a midlife crisis on schedule. And it was really the fact that after about 15 years of practicing conventionally as I was trained, I was beginning to truly experience the frustration my patients were describing when I would write a prescription for them or send them or refer them to a specialist for an interventional procedure that they were um, asking, isn't there something else? And when I didn't really have a good answer because I wasn't really trained to provide another answer, I w they were frustrated and then I became increasingly frustrated as this kept happening. Then in my own life as I approached that age and looking at where I had gone and what I had achieved, I remember working very hard and I had three kids at the time, I had my house, I had my two-car garage, I had other things that I had dreamed about but was feeling somewhat incomplete and that the final straw perhaps was that my blood pressure started to rise and I started to get sort of indigestion and my blood pressure in particular when it crossed that line of 140 over 90 which at that time things are a little different now, I think that's actually a little bit late in the game to think about doing something about it but in 2000 when this happened, that would be the crossover between you're okay, work on it, to you need medications. And when I looked at my own blood pressure and I said, well, if I was my own patient, I'd be prescribing myself a medication. I said, I don't want that. And then I started to really um, understand what people were asking me for. And I understood how valuable, important that question was and that for me not to have a better answer wasn't acceptable. So it drove me to then open my mind to figure out what else I need to know, to learn, to apply, so that I could help people more. Hi, and welcome to the Compassionate Achiever podcast. I'm Tracy Gay. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Chris Cook, political and social science professor at Western Connecticut State University. He's founder of the Center for Compassion, Creativity, and Innovation, director of the Kathwari Honors Program, Harvard Fellow, Fulbright Scholar, and ex-counterintelligence agent. And he's the author of The Compassionate Achiever, How Helping Others Fuels Success, his new book. Hi, Chris. Hi, Tracy. How are you? I'm psyched. I'm psyched for today's uh, podcast as well. I think that the brain power in this room, not <laughs> not radiating from my seat. Oh, come but, on. Uh, yes, no. it is. I, I, you know, I didn't fall off the turnip <laughs> yet, but um, no, I am so excited to have our guest today, uh, Dr. Michael Finkelstein. So just a little background to fill the, the listeners in. Thank you so much for coming, though. Yes. I, this is really great to have you. I'm happy to be here. It's great. So a uh, little background on Michael. Do you mind if we do, we just do first I like names? Michael. Okay, good. <laughs> Sounds good. We don't want to be too formal mm. here, no. But Dr. Michael Finkelstein is the founder and medical director of Sunraven, the home of Slow Medicine. It's located in beautiful Bedford, New York, right? right near Western Connecticut State University, not too far away. He's certified in internal medicine where he's received his degree from the University of Pennsylvania. You were awarded the honors of Phi Beta Kappa, Summa Cum Laude, and the Dean's List. Like I said, a lot of, lot of brain power from both of you. I'm, I'm sure we could go through a whole more laundry list of this, but Dr. Finkelstein is also certified in integrative medicine after he received an associate fellowship uh, in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. 
You've served as the medical director of several major hospitals, including Northern Westchester Hospital, where you spearheaded the creation of the Department of Integrative Medicine, and you've been featured in the New York Times, CNN, Real Simple, the Huffington Post, and now the Creative, (laughs) the Compassionate Achiever podcast. So welcome. So happy to have you. Again, I'm really happy to be here with both of you and sharing whatever it is I can with your audience. So I, we were just, um, and right before I cut you off so that you wouldn't be talking about it, and now you can talk <laughs> about it on the air. So the two of you are going to be... You're like a sister, you know that? That's yeah. what I'm to, <laughs> you just kind of want to like slap me a little <laughs> no, bit, right? No, no. Oh, compassionately. No. <laughs> compassionately. Yes, but no, yes. it's seriously, I like what you did because you, you're you know, saving the discussion for now. I, I get it. I totally yeah. get well, it. Well, thank you for, you know... <laughs> <laughs> allowing me to cut you off. So tell us, um, Michael, how what you're going to be doing here at WestCon. Well, in the upcoming months, September and October, respectively, I'm going to be the first speaker in two different series. In September on the 13th is a well, Wednesday wellness lunch series. And I'm going to speak about my work, which I call slow medicine. In essence, it's how I vision the future of medicine, which is to respond to the fast world and how it affects us with a way of living, an approach to living, as opposed to medicines uh, administered by somebody else. So it has to do with our thought process, our understanding of what health is, and then gets to more practical ideas about how we can then make some shifts in our lives, starting with our minds, uh, to align ourselves with our life's purpose, and then our body and mind tend to follow. The evening program that will be the beginning of an evening lecture series on the 24th of October is to help uh, people who are in the audience then to really deal with navigating the conventional medical system when you have integrative medicine in your mind. Uh, mm-hmm. The idea being that a lot of people are aware of these things now and have a hard time communicating with their medical professionals because they're concerned that they won't be well received, they'll be rejected outright. Or, you know, there won't be enough time for the dialogue to begin with. So some of what I will hope to do is to help people really incorporate this into their lives, but also bring in a conversation with their physicians and other healthcare providers so that uh, people can organize around the individual. To me, primary care is what you do for yourself. Everyone else is a consultant. So we often think of going to an internist, as I was, and that's primary care medicine. But no, I think it's what we do to the person we see in the mirror every morning. And that's, uh, that's what I'm gonna try to emphasize, which is how much power people have to take control of their lives. And part of that is to communicate effectively with the other people who are involved in their healthcare process. And sometimes that is not an easy process. <laughs> I think no. we all know that. And Chris, not to put you on the spot, but you've dealt with this kind of um, you know, traditional medicine versus in- integrative medicine before with Ellie, right? I mean, yeah. well, back in the nineties, yeah, back in the nineties, it was, it was split. It was you know, a lot of people, especially in the Boston area where we were, you know, when you talked about, you know, it was alternative uh, medicine, it, they just would, you know, hands up, mm. you know, and just kind of shut, shut down any type of discussion about doing this. So, you know, what we're talking about today is I think a blend. I think, you know, when we talk about alternative medicine a lot of people in the popular culture tend to think you know eastern side and when they Mm -hmm. think traditional medicine here it's a western type and and correct me if i'm wrong but the integrative is 
integrating right. kind of both yeah. of those We've types of ideas. We've gotten away from the either or, which yeah, is good. That's what I'm I trying mean, to get yeah. to. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And when I was going through it, you know, it wasn't an either or for my wife. And the naturopathic doctor at that time was not covered by insurance. Now a lot of them are covered by insurance. So it kind of shows you the progression just, you know, in terms of thinking, but also economically when insurance companies start including it. In, in, in their coverage, you know, mm-hmm. economically speaking, it, it actually makes sense. So not just in terms of health, it makes sense. It certainly does. I saw it. We witnessed it firsthand. But economically, it does too. And I think that moves a lot of people when you talk, bring economics into it as well. It takes those people who are doubters and said, well, let's give it a try then. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's all we're asking for in integrative medicine. Give it a try and you'll see the difference. Right before it was the Heisman Trophy, right? The stiff arm (laughs) (laughs) that that went out. Stay away. Yeah, true. Well, and I want to get into the insurance part um, later on. But since this is um, a show about compassionate and we're talking to compassionate achievers in their own right, which you clearly are, (laughs) you're, you're a poster child for it. What role do you think compassion has in a medical doctor? And has it changed over time? Well, when I was in medical school in the early 80s, essentially, the, the first thing I learned, actually, that was very valuable was put yourself in the position of the patient when you speak to them. Think about how you would like to be spoken to and what might go on in your mind. So empathy was a big part of my training. That said, that was academic, meaning that was what was said. and. Yes, it was the maybe the foundation of what was designed. However, in practice, what is so difficult and has become increasingly difficult since I graduated in the mid-80s is the limited amount of time. And even though you can be a compassionate individual while running 60 miles an hour, it's not as easy when you are limited by time and space. So with doctor's visits being increasingly shortened, the extra time for a heartfelt question like, how are you really doing? How's your family doing? You know, how are you sleeping at night? What's on your mind? Really is superseded by what a lot of people expect first from their physician, which is give me the answers to questions like, what do I need to do? And that is is lost, therefore, the compassionate element, even though I think it exists. All of my colleagues in medicine, for the most part, began that way. I have Mm -hmm. no doubt. But a lot of people in the profession and the profession as a whole gets a rap as being hardened, uh, insensitive, and while I think in practice there's reasons for that I can agree with, that that doesn't mean the individual didn't start off with a desire to be compassionate. It's the system around that I think is making it increasingly difficult, which led me, once I was in there for a while, to look at another approach, one where I had time. Because what I really wanted to reinstitute in my own work was to make sure that I could put my arm around somebody and just spend maybe 30 seconds without communicating verbally at all, but just by essentially being in the room with them. Mm-hmm. And that, as a healing practice, may be as powerful as any other medicine. <laughs> and you talk about that in the book. Exactly. Right? I mean... <laughs> it is. It's about the environment that you're in, right? That, you know, according to Darwin, uh, according to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, right, we're all born with natural compassion. But the environment, the system, the culture that we are born into according to both of them, which I, I'd like to give them some credence as, as scholars, they, they, are, um, they say that we unlearn it through our society. And you're basically saying that you know, doctors are unlearning it through the system 
that that they're having to go through and and you know I've had some great um, medical doctor friends who retired because the system was doing exactly what you were saying and they just had it yeah. they just they were fed up with the the bureaucratic paperwork side of it the equation side of it right and that they were they were I see great doctors as artists mm-hmm. right um, and they're sculpting a living uh, being in, in a beautiful way when I had I had a great family doctor. I'm going to call him out right now, Dr. Pellegrino, man. He, he, he right here in Brookfield, and he, he, he was an artist. When you went in, you know you're going to come out. Even if you were sick, you were coming out feeling better, laughing, right? right? Mm-hmm. And and they're few and far between now. Right. And I, I think you're right. I think that you know people go into your profession because they care, because mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. because they're compassionate. And then the system is set up that you know, it takes it all down. So yeah. Which is hard on physicians, just as an aside. I mean, so not that they're completely free of responsibility for what happens when they rush through visits and they and they have been somewhat, as an organization, complicit with allowing these changes to be made in terms of the reduction of time and, and the infiltration of business into the practice of medicine, I think, has really corrupted it, if you want to use that word, leaving people to have to do more for themselves. So that's what I said, well, I'm going to follow those people. I'm going to be, say, with them in my practice, in my professional mindset, but I want to now help them, let's say, at home, as opposed to having them come to a clinical environment. I wanted to give them ideas about how they deal with the days between those doctor's visits. Mm -hmm. And I certainly want to explore Sunraven and slow medicine and what you're doing now more, but I want to take a step back. um, And if you can tell us a little bit about your background as the traditional doctor, medicine, uh, MD, um, and was there something, was there like a specific, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back that you said, I've had it, or was this kind of just evolving over time that you, about what you're talking about, saying it's just changing and I'm not able to give patients the care I want to? You know, there were, there were two things that collided at a particular time, right around the age of 40. So you could say I had a midlife crisis on schedule, and it was really the fact that after about 15 years of practicing conventionally as I was trained, I was beginning to truly experience the frustration my patients were describing when I would write a prescription for them or send them or refer them to a specialist for an interventional procedure, that they were... um, asking, isn't there something else? And when I didn't really have a good answer because I wasn't really trained to provide another answer, they were frustrated and then I became increasingly frustrated as this kept happening. Then in my own life as I approached that age and looking at where I had gone and what I had achieved, I remember working very hard and I had three kids at the time, I had my house, I had my two-car garage, I had other things that I had dreamed about but was feeling somewhat incomplete. And that the final straw perhaps was and my blood pressure started to rise, and I started to get sort of indigestion. And my blood pressure in particular, when it crossed that line of 140 over 90, which at that time, things are a little different now, I think that's actually a little bit late in the game to think about doing something about it, but in 2000, when this happened, that would be the crossover between you're okay, work on it, to you need medications. And when I looked at my own blood pressure and I said, well, if I was my own patient, I'd be prescribing myself a medication. I said, I don't want that. Mm -hmm. And then I started to really um, understand 
what people were asking me for. And I understood how valuable and important that question was and that for me not to have a better answer wasn't acceptable. So it drove me to then open my mind to figure out what else I need to know, to learn, to apply so that I could help people more. Mm -hmm. So for me, you know, listening to you, I think Tracy's right. You're absolutely a compassionate achiever in, in medicine. And one of the things that I think I'd love for our listeners to kind of understand is the way I see listening to you just now, it's like you did a compassionate judo uh, move. You took the system and the weight of the system and where the weight of the system was throwing you, basically, and you used the weight of the system against itself, right? To, you went where the system was throwing people, basically, right? Yeah, I went with it. And, 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 and can you explain that? Because I think in anybody's profession, that type of thinking is a little bit, it's different than what we're, what we're told and we're explained. So yeah, could you go into that a little more? People often find themselves at crossroads in their lives. It might be magically at the age of 40, as it happened to me, or it could be because of an injury and illness to oneself or somebody really close, where you wake up the next day saying, like, what am I doing? You know, is this really my path or have I been, you know, playing out somebody else's ideas for my life? The word crisis, though, when applied to it, midlife crisis, is when you see that and for whatever reasons you don't make the move. You don't decide to get back on track then you're in crisis. Then you're living a life which is stressful because of the distance and the, the polarity between your truth and your path and what you're doing. And every day becomes a strain. What I noticed when that started to happen to me was that if I knew that if I stayed then in the facade, uh, in the persona of Michael, the doctor, the medical director, medical director, excuse me, then I would wind up really getting sick. Whether that manifested as a medical illness, it would be certainly a mental health issue to begin, and it would cause effects not only in my work, but in my private life. And so I said to myself that day, it was actually June 21st, 2000. I remember exactly when so it was. So there was a breaking <laughs> Because point. I was sitting yeah. in my backyard. It was a summer solstice. I had been planting beautiful gardens for my family, you know, to adorn our lives. and. I actually felt, on top of everything else, somewhat lonely that I had been for, forgetting how to relate to some of those people that I was living with. And it struck me that, you know, it looked good on the surface, but it wasn't really working inside and that I had to do something different or I was going to crash. And so, you, you know, I was motivated because then I understood what other people were going through to not only take care of myself differently, but then I immediately realized that I could then, if I learned this well, to apply it and apply it in my work. So, and I'm sure you guys have heard this a million times, but the first time I heard it, I thought, wow, nobody ever said that before. Dis-ease for mm -hmm. disease um, is really, I mean, it explains what it is. You, you're, at, you're having problems. You are not at ease with yourself. And so you took that and said, I need to do something about it. And kudos to you for changing it because unfortunately, so many people aren't in a position or don't think they're in a position that they can change it. Or I, I believe that we're all, you know, we guard our own lives, but we don't just let things happen to us. But that can be hard. You know, people are like, well, I gotta pay the bills. And I, you know, like what you said, that you're in a position, you've, you know, you're doing well, you're whatever. But 
you're saying, am I going to risk that to, to change things for the better? And so we always like to talk about that we have, we want to give people tools of, of how to change and how to be more compassionate. So what are some of the things, let's go into Sunraven. So on that day you decided I'm going to change things. What did you do to change your surroundings, your position, everything to go to Sunraven? Well, or from, to create yeah. Sunraven, rather. Well, from there, it was roughly a five-year process of evolution. So on that day, I, I recognized that something would have to change and that I would have to be prepared to not only let go of some things, but that I would have to keep my mind wide open to understand and to see the path. So I also understood at that time that as cognitively dominant as I was growing up, that I would need to use different faculties for this process. That I would have to, and that's what I mean with by opening wide open, was to really use other senses that I had, emotional, spiritual intelligence, to see that path. So I sat there, and I sat there for quite a while until it became evident. I didn't push it, as I had done a lot of other things in my life. And the next thing that did happen was 9-11. So on that day, which was about a year later, um, in response, because we're you know 50 miles from New York City at that time, there was a very wealthy man who lived in Mount Kisco who decided in response, uh, though this was also his personal passion for a number of reasons, to bring a check for a million dollars to Northern Westchester Hospital to build an integrated medicine practice. And it was that motivated helps. in part by not only his philanthropy and his understanding, but his comment more or less was that this is the future of medicine. And wherever I have a house, I'm going to go to the, clo- and he had several in the, in the country, that I'm going to go to the closest hospital and make sure they have what I will need if I roll into their emergency room. And so, but I want to also support the community in which I live. So that day, or actually it was the day after, because that day was pretty occupied with waiting and, and looking for an opportunity to be helpful. Of course, we, we, didn't have much to do, which was part of the reason I think the gift was so thoughtful and timely, was it was a response to heal on a different level. And the president of the hospital turned to me the following day and said, Michael, this sounds like a really good idea. I have no idea what he's talking about, integrative medicine. Remember, this was 2001. So he said, you're the medical director. You find out. So for my job, I had to study integrative medicine. And so that was, to me, the opening. That was... Mm -hmm what became clear to me as the path. Once I started to study, I went to a conference the following month, and I was turned on. I really understood more specifically about what is being spoken of when one talks about bringing in all the forms of health and healing to bear on the individual. I was able to learn about it, use it for myself, to see its benefits, and to get very passionate about it. Because 9-11 occurred, I also had a trip planned to Egypt about a month later, which we canceled, and decided instead, because I was being stressed quite a bit in my work and life, that I needed a retreat. And we went to Rancho La Puerta, which is a holistic spa, the first spa in North America, founded in 1940 by a family that still runs and owns it, and the woman who founded it in 1940 is still alive. She's 95. A testament to what they I do there. I was just going to say, <laughs> obviously something's working for yes. her, right? Yes, it is. But I went there instead of Egypt. 
And that was the first time I ever was exposed to meditation, yoga, Buddhism. And when I went there a month later, and then I was studying integrative medicine, and I had this experience, I realized, no, there was something I had not seen in all of my studies in our lives buried in this silo of the Western culture until I ventured out. And so those things came together as the practical next steps for me that really began a very exciting journey and path and took some years. When I returned, I graduated the program uh, at Andrew, with Andrew Weil in, in Arizona in 2003 and opened up that clinic with Northern Westchester Hospital. And after about two and a half years, I saw, and this is part of the dilemma, that the hospital was not going to continue that practice after those funds ran out. And then I had to decide what I wanted to do. And I decided to leave the hospital, find another place to work, which was this farm next door to where I lived at the time. It was just a beautiful piece of property with an old barn, and it was available. And in 2005, I bought that property, left Northern Westchester Hospital, moved my practice and my associations with health and healers that I had met all over this area to join me in sort of a... a, practice without walls, a collaborative process, but on a farm, because I had learned how powerful nature was as one of the major healing forces. And that environment suits us really well. And to this day, we operate that farming practice and bring people. And essentially what we do there is cultivate healthy humans. That's what I say. <laughs> that that's so admirable the way you say it though it sounds kind of creepy. <laughs> just, they're growing oh in pods. They're growing in pods out there. They're like no. Well, we stick their hands in the soil, but we don't, we don't we don't really force it. We just sort of like maybe drizzle a little soil. No, but that's right. that's really cool because it's it's a it's a way that I think brings us back down to not only literally back down to earth, but who we are. Mm-hmm. And in, as human beings, we are social creatures. And sometimes we think we can cordon off everything, and even ourselves. And it's just not the case. And, and I think you know, opening up to that interaction and doing what you're doing you know, allows people to fulfill truly who they are and who they become. So thank you for doing that. Well, and I certainly didn't mean to sound critical. <laughs> it's creepy. Okay. It, is, it is the he farthest thing. He started smiling. No, no, no. <laughs> it, I, and I've, I've had the pleasure and the privilege of going to Sunraven and working with you and with Robin, your wife, and um, who we can get into that a little bit about what she's doing there too. But the programs that you have going there, and it's just... You, you drive in right from the minute you drive in to the property. It's just so welcoming and fulfilling. It's a very fulfilling, that's just the word that comes to mind, but you open your kitchen to people. You, I mean, now you actually live on that property. It's not just that's next right. door, mm-hmm. right? That's right. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. And it's, but it's very different, obviously, than, I mean, it's far cry from Westchester. Westchester Medical, but um, I think, are we going kind of full circle? Are we going kind of back to the basics of, you know, people doing house calls? I mean... Or farm calls. Or farm calls. (laughs) (laughs) No, think about that. that. Well, I think when you ask somebody to truly come up with a definition for health, they will eventually move off the first pass of it, which usually is, well, if my body is healthy, I'm healthy, to realize that, no, their mind and their mental process is part of it. Their relationships to other people are definitely part of it. 
the relationship to the natural world is part of it. The relationship to the sacred is part of it. Their community that they live in that supports them and all of that is part of it. And then their own individual reason for being alive is a personal purpose or passion, you might say. So when people realize, well, that's health. Health is all those things. Then while my body is very important, I'm not going to give up on that. And it may be the thing that if it's really aching me will interfere with some of those other ones that and new science really dictates that when the mind, the mental process, the subconscious mind in particular and consciousness are all aligned, the body does better. So there's two approaches to then physical health. It's one is, you know, hitting the nail with a hammer and the other is to create the vision for the house and is to work from the ground up then without worrying about even the tools or the skills that are necessary, but understand our purpose for living. It gets into shared humanity, uh, collective consciousness. Uh, there are other subjects. Now, that may be far afield to where a lot of people come in, certainly to me still, uh, may be asking for, but I do try to establish that with them because then the answer to the question, well, what do I need to do for my health, changes when health is broadened. and for the, our work, which we call slow medicine, it has seven tenets. The visual is a medicine wheel. It's a wheel with seven spokes, and those tenets are seven, including those seven areas that I mentioned, you know, the body, the mind, our relationships to others, our relationship to the earth, to the divine, our communities, and our life's purpose. And we try to emulate by bringing people to our home, by seeing what happens in the garden, to realize that a healthy ecosystem is one where all those things are dealt with at the same time mm -hmm. and trying to help people develop not only their own personal package but then to support them to bring them back to that environment where it's you know easier it's more fun it's enjoyable because this should be feel like fun rather than work uh, and that's a that's a little bit of a almost a paradigm shift for people when they think about their health. Most people think it's a sacrifice of some sort. My diet, I'm de deprived, or I have to cut out Saturdays so I can take a walk you know, for my peace of mind, as opposed to these things are really enjoyable. I think it may take a while for people and a little bit of a leap of faith, but I am not only convinced that it works, but I am excited to bring that message to other people. Mm -hmm. No. It's about interconnections, you know, it's right, how everything is interconnected. And, and listening to you um, and some of the ideas that you're talking to, one of the things I, I quickly jotted down because there's a saying in Buddhism, specifically in Zen Buddhism, that says, you know, we are what we do, mm -hmm. right? And if you are not uh, doing the things that, you're, that make you strong, well, you're not going to be right. strong. You're most likely going to be weak in many different aspects. And I'm interested, because you haven't talked about it yet, and, and have a medical doctor even discuss this would be really cool, is I, I find meditation a really important part of my day. So I, I plug it in after I run. I have to warm down. I have to stretch anyways. right? So, uh, and Tracy and I have had fun with me multitasking, which doesn't mm -hmm. usually work out well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but For none of us. I don't think it works right. well for it any doesn't. of us. It doesn't. And neuroscience you know has shown I mean? that, right? And we've, we've, we've talked about yeah. that before in another show. But, you know, that where I'm stretching and, and doing meditation, it just all seems to click for me. And can you speak about the role of meditation? And sure. I only do it for like 10 minutes a day, but those 10 minutes, 
I feel like I can get up. And for us older uh, listeners, I felt like Steve Austin, the $6 million man. It would be the $6 billion man now. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> Inflation. <laughs> yeah. So you know, could you speak uh, sure. about, about the role of that? And Because and, I do compassion meditation. And it really helps me, you know, start out the day, I think, in a better way. So when someone cuts me off, I'm not flipping them off. I'm, you know, like, oh, I hope they have a better day. Otherwise, they wouldn't have cut me off. Yeah. Well, here's what I would say. Meditation, as a word, often gets people to think of the spiritual practice of disconnecting from the material, physical world and entering another space of consciousness where one really sits in, let's say, a sea of something metaphysical. And for a lot of people, that whole concept is not where they feel they need to be at this point. So the word meditation, to me, tips people over. But there's two values of meditation. One, for the spiritual practitioner, it's essential. It's the only way to really devote oneself to that higher level of consciousness. Devote. I don't mean it can't be done elsewhere, but to really say, this is what I'm doing as close to 100% as I can in this moment, it's my practice, it's my devotion, it's the way I honor the sacred, call it God, call it, call it universal consciousness, whatever. And so for people who feel that that's important, that meditation is a prototypical practice. For somebody who really just would only be interested if it has a physical benefit, here's what I would say. We call our work slow medicine for a reason, that it's the fast world and how it affects us that is the common denominator between all the ailments we have. It's the rush, rush, rush of modern life. It's how it affects our, our minds, but then how our minds in response affect ourselves because what the response in our body to our mind that's hyperstimulated is the sympathetic nervous system. When the sympathetic nervous system turns on, adrenaline is released, all sorts of things happen in the body, including you don't digest food, you don't really think so clearly, your organs like your liver and kidney don't work as efficiently, and there are many others. And so. When people have chronic ailments, and they also happen to be in this world where their sympathetic nervous system is locked on, those two lead to more problems. The treatment then, conceptually, is to turn the sympathetic nervous system off. And fortunately, our bodies have the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the off switch. The prototypical off switch is in the vagus nerve, which descends from the brain to the diaphragms below the lungs, and a deep breath is really all one needs to do to touch the parasympathetic nervous system by stretching those fibers and getting the flurry of adrenaline and everything else to stop. Now that might only be a momentary response, but it's very effective. If one can then learn to bathe in that juice, one can temper the response, the experience, and ultimately reset their sensitivity dial in terms of how, how much they're affected by that fast world. So meditation, again, is a very powerful practice to do that because when one meditates, even if they're not a successful meditator, meaning they don't go flighting up into the cosmos, uh, they really just relax. What most people know in 10 minutes of meditation is that they're breathing much more calmly, their body is relaxed, their shoulders and their neck are relaxed. These are all evidence of the parasympathetic nervous system doing its work. And so 10 minutes of calm breathing, call it meditation, call it guided imagery, call it breathing exercises, whatever it is, is that effective. And that's the prototype for our work. So when you are engaged in something that you love to do, most people are breathing that way naturally. When you're painting, if you're an artist, when you're creating music, when you're out in the garden, if you love gardening, time passes, you don't know how long it's been, you don't need to eat, you don't need to drink, you, don't, you know, those things are evidence 
that you're in your flow zone, and that means the parasympathetic nervous system has shut off the sympathetic. Those are healthy practices, and that's what I think meditation offers, and that's what slow medicine is all about. Well, I have a, a friend, and I'm going to throw him under the bus here, but he, he would... Wait a minute, would, is it me? Would, no, 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 no. I can do that, right? I'll do that all, no, all day. But Will, um, who is just the typical type A, he was a trader, now he's in hedge funds, has his own hedge fund, you know, just living life to the fullest, if you can say that, but, you know, on paper, he looks like that, right? And, but just wound way too tight and he somebody turned him on to this 10 minutes of meditation and at first he was like look really in my line of work I have no time for that you know can't can't take these 10 minutes out to do that and um for whatever reason he said I've got to change something just like what you said you sometimes get to that point where you're like okay something's got to give so he started to do this 10 minutes of meditation he said it has not only helped his health to literally, he tries to do it twice a day, and, um, but it's actually helped his performance as a hedge fund manager because he can look at it differently. He can slow down, exact, I mean, you just explained the technical terms, but this is living proof that even somebody who is this type A, crazy, crazy, run, 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 it works. It really does work. So, I mean, if you can just even take even those few breaths, right? Mm -hmm. Just for that moment to kind of get out of that crisis cycle. Um, it's, it's amazing what, what that can do for you. It's extremely right? powerful. Yeah. And, and right, we, vagus nerve came up and mm -hmm. listening to you. And I write about the vagus nerve in the book because mm -hmm. it's also commonly referred to as the nerve of compassion, mm -hmm. right? And so when you activate in high, a high vagal tone, right? Everything's kind of yes. copacetic. Yeah, right? and, and the quality of your life in the moment improves. And so what, are we, what do we want to be healthy for? We want to have those quality moments. Right. So the two are really how one aligns the effort with the result. And anything else, to me, and we see it all the time, are people who might be successful in some ways, but in truth, if they go home and there's nobody talking to them, what's that mean? Right. right. And as a physician, one of the things that I had the opportunity to witness, and there was quite a lot toward my learning about this point, was when I'm sitting at the bedside of people who are dying. Those are individuals who have, tend to be very clear about what's gone on in their lives and the choices that they've made. And very few say, I should have worked harder. Mm. Very few say that, you know, I didn't uh, have enough money or, you know, this, you know, I needed something else on a material level. It was really all about relationships. And in, at that moment, I saw really two groups of people. The majority, unfortunately, had a lot of regret about those choices. And the few, though, who were inspiring to me, which is part of the message that I try to share with as many people as I can, is that they focus on the quality moments, those relationships, to be in the in a good headspace when they were gonna do something important with people they loved or cared about. And that was actually very compatible to their success on other levels, just like you said. It's, but it, it generates the quality life that I think all of us are seeking. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm listening to you and, and for our listeners out there, um, as, as Tracy knows, I'm a big Evernote user. I, I store everything I have in there. And you know, there was a December 5th, 
2016 Wall Street Journal article, Wall Street Journal article about this, right? About scientists try stimulating the vagus nerve to help migraines, rheumatoid arthritis, and stroke, among other conditions, right? And it's just, listen to this. This is you. You could have written this part, right? The slow, deep breathing and meditation naturally stimulates the vagus nerve, which promotes relaxation. This is from the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. right? This, just in the 90s, if you said that was going to be in the Wall Street Journal, people would have laughed at you. Mm-hmm. They would have thought it was an onion show or mm-hmm. something, right? Okay. Part of the onion, mm-hmm. right? So this idea that people are opening up to these other ideas that are naturally within us, the solutions are literally within us if we allow ourselves to open it. But, you know, it's taking the courage to do that. And I love when you said, you know, it takes that one deep breath. In social-emotional learning, in, in the program that I helped develop, we call it a brave breath. Because it does, right? It takes that courage. To... And it's hard sometimes when you're in that moment of that fight or flight and you're just really yeah, freaking right. out. That's when you need to do it, but that's the hardest to remember. When... Well, that's why practice is so important. Mm. So just like, you know, you know, athletes, they practice for a lot of times so that in the moment, in the middle of the game, despite all the pressure, the, you know, thousands of fans screaming and, and their whole career on the line, they could, you know, do whatever it is, shoot the free throw, mm-hmm. you know, get the shot in. Muscle memory or whatever it's, it's yes. called. So practice, yeah. and in fact, when people meditate, they call it, it's a practice of meditation. It's not like there's a, a goal one achieves. It's the process that one goes through. And in fact, I think our lives are really, can be benefited if we think of it as a process as opposed to goals. Getting no, to 99 is a nice goal in essence, but wouldn't you rather have 99 good years, which means that it's a process. It can't just be getting there and you know slapping yourself on the back saying good job if there's nobody around you at, at the bedside when you're dying. And, and that's what I saw, which was you know, the hardest thing to witness people feeling very alone after all that time, after all that work, after all these thoughts and thinking. So it was motivating to me to bring that message out. So, um, what kind of programs you've talked about? We've well, we talked about meditation, obviously, and and looking at your health as a whole and that kind of thing. What kinds of programs um, do you have at Sunraven? I I I love it. I I get your newsletter and I, I think it's fascinating. Um, you have a new teepee. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so not so too many tell people us, can say that. Not huh? too many people, especially can around say here. That. <laughs> exactly. So tell us, like. For listeners that are like, well, what else could I be doing? Okay, so we've checked the box on meditation, but what else can I do? Well, I think space has a lot to do with the setup for how well we're going to do whenever we do it. So as an example, you could go to a scientist, a great nutritionist, read all the books on diet, and have the perfect diet. Let's say there is one. And by the way, I don't think there is. But let's say there (laughs) is one, and you have that perfect diet. It's on the plate in front of you. And now on your mind, though, is the news or the fight you just had with your ex or the, you know, issues with your kids or the disease a doctor just told you about is running rampant in your life. And that's on your mind. Now you have this stuff on your plate. Now you're eating with that on your mind. Because you're now in the sympathetic nervous system's hold, grip, your digestive tract is not working as well as it could. So this perfect food is not going to be digested and assimilated as well as you would like. So there's somewhat of a missed opportunity there. So a lot of our work is to first start with the ambiance, the space, and the intention, which has a lot of energy. So you mentioned TP, and it sort of sounds a little funny. It's true. 
uh, it was an idea that a friend of ours said, hey, you know, Michael, this would be a good thing for you to get as a teepee. So we did. We got a very large teepee. It's a Sioux-style teepee made by Sioux Native Americans who shipped it from the Pacific Northwest to us, and it was hand-designed. It can seat about 25 people, so it's a very large wow. We're space. We're not talking the uh, little backyard. No, it's not. It's not for We're the, not even talking in urt here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not for the kids. Um, but it's got a central fire pit, and it's sacred geometry. So just like a cathedral might be considered sacred geometry, where people spend a lot of time on what's the dimensions of this, and how does it feel when we get inside. And most people know how it feels to be in certain buildings, let's say, or in certain spaces, whether it's nature or whatever, where they're moved by the space. Well, we believe strongly that so that we could provide the best uh, opportunity for people is to work with the spaces, to invite people to places that are inspiring without any other effort than stepping into it. So the teepee is particularly powerful. People gather around in a, an exact circle around a central fire pit. It's in our, you mentioned muscle memory before, Tracy, there's an emotional memory we have too, which is not just individual but collective. Uh, it brings up a primal response in that setup for people to feel very connected. So community is such an important part of what we do that that's one example of our space. Then we bring people, into, as you mentioned, into our kitchen. We bring people to sit into this platform space, which we'll call a living room, but it was an old barn, so it wasn't built as a living room. It was where the horses were. Um, so it happens to be a platform. And we have this other garden, and we have animals, and we have a little microcosm of a world in balance. And when people, and you cross creeks, and you go through gates, and there's chimes, the idea is, and what we hear in feedback, is that when people step on the property, they're already feeling different, and that's the parasympathetic nervous system that we're stimulating. Then we add... Whatever is interesting for people. You want to talk about nutrition? I'll talk to you about that. You want to garden and move your body with other people and be creative? We'll do that. You want to sit in the teepee with men or women or couples? We do that. Uh, you want to see me one-on-one talk about things? That's the environment. My office, by the way, was um, designed to you know, sort of remind people of what it feels like to be in a treehouse. Uh, so the idea is to be playful to be light, and um, but to really connect the dots between the body, the mind, our, our histories, our connect, need for connection, as you mentioned, Chris, and, and just to really feel whole, whole being the operative word, actually exactly the same as the word health from the Anglo-Saxon root, halen, that they mean they are the same thing, as is holy and other words that we throw around all day long not realizing that what we're really seeking is wholeness. So what happens when that wholeness breaks and you break your leg? I mean, you obviously are an MD. Is that when you say, well, there are certain things that we need traditional medicine for? Absolutely, and a broken leg is a really good example. So, you know, a prayer circle is a nice idea, but it's there are tools and technology we have that could one, save lives, which is very important, and two, deal with things that are um, could be accelerated by techniques, including casting or surgeries, uh, even some medicines. However, to me, those are like seeds that a gardener puts in soil. If the seed is good, say the surgical technique is precise, but the soil, meaning not just the body of that person, but their body-mind-spirit complex, is not really in harmony. As I know, I don't stick my seeds in the ground until the ground thaws, until I've worked the soil, until I tested the, you know, the minerals and the, and the water content. And 
what I would say is you go to a doctor when you have a heart attack and when you break your leg and you have a major injury of another sort or illness, but you have to think about the primary care here, which is your, how you care for yourself, because that's the soil. So all of those great seeds will work better if the person who owns the soil works the soil. Makes sense. Absolutely. So what do you, um, you have a relationship with Dr. Oz, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so what is that relationship and have you ever discussed like the kind of dichotomy of the direction you're taking as opposed to the direction that he takes or are they one in the same? A little bit. I'll share how we, we, you know, that sort of has evolved that conversation. So we were medical school classmates, so we've known each other for quite a while now and you know, stayed in touch a little bit. He went to do his residency in New York City, as I did, and so we uh, sort of were connected. And then he had his early life children, me had children, and sort of fell up, you know, s- separate for a little while until I started to get into this holistic integrative medicine. And one of the people who came to me had worked in his operating room doing a study on whether or not energy healing could support the outcomes for people having open heart surgery which was a very interesting study. And of course, he was a maverick in that regard at Columbia at the time. This was before his fame as a public figure, celebrity, and obviously uh, quite a remarkable person in terms of how much of an audience he has to share his ideas and thoughts about health and healing. However, what I think can be said is, as a result of how big he's become, there is pressure in his own life for his own self-care. And so the question I have asked him is not to challenge what he's doing or whether or not what he says he feels good about or how critics are responding to that. I mean, that comes part and parcel with being famous. Uh, but was, how are you doing, Mehmet, is really what I would say, is how are you taking care of yourself? How are you feeling? How's your family? For the most part, I would say he answers that pretty well, meaning I believe that he does take good care of himself, that he is a man who has remarkable energy to begin with, but has maintained it by staying in relative balance. But I do think there's a fundamental, and this is not something I discussed with him, a fundamental difference, which is to entertain people in the subject of health versus to really help somebody in a smaller setting um, make those changes which are very difficult. So I think he presents a lot of interesting ideas to people mm-hmm. a lot, of, and encourages them to think for themselves and to consider trying things. And I think at times he goes far. He goes to lines which might include maybe coming across as recommending something. However, I think the intention is well-meaning, having spoken to him, and I think this is just the nature of the business that he's in. However, what I think is really importantly different is that people need help making the change. And that's, it could be a group of people embrace this, and, and if he got his audience together and he had a whole weekend workshop with 300 people or 3,000 people, I think that could work. But that's not his mission. His mission is just to reach as many people as he can. I'd rather sit with audiences for three days. I just completed an eight-day juice fast, as an example, on Sunday. And so there were 10 people in RTP for five hours a day for the you know more or less the last week. And I know those individuals have had lives affected and 10 people affect 10 more people in their circle who affect him more and it's exponential. And that's how I choose to work. I think we need more of that. Mm-hmm. Wow. So do you, and just one quick question because we could go on about healthcare and insurance and all that, so we don't wanna really go there, but how do we get society to 
and maybe you've just answered that question, but how do we get society and insurance companies to to uh, not just you know acknowledge it, but to say this is what we're going to use for our norm? I mean, like you said, Chris, there's a few insurance companies that are, are paying for this now, and the Wall Street Journal is talking about it. I mean, it's it's so much more popular, but I still think there's a lot of people out there that don't really know what it is. Yeah. And, and how do you do that? How do you change that? I think the answer is education. And it starts with children. But I think when, since it's adults who educate children for the most part, the adults need to be educated also in terms of what they're going to do. But I think we need to understand that the approach to living and how our culture is set up requires a fundamental change. I think the health insurance industry is not going to lead this, nor is it responding to the real fundamental question of what is health. So it's important and people need access and these things have expenses associated with them. So that becomes difficult. But to me, the best prevention is how somebody takes care of themselves, what's going on in that internal area, how, what's on their mind when they eat, whatever it is that they eat, how they focus on the quality of their relationships at home and around their neighborhood, what they understand as the meaning of life and the value of all life. And with that, which doesn't really cost anything, I think people get far ahead of where they are. If that's the emphasis, I think we'll need less of the healthcare institution. We'll still need it for the acute life-threatening things and we'll be thankful that that exists, that the scientists are out there developing technologies to make a difference in people's lives. But I've seen people cured of disease who have had miserable lives that followed. That's not what I wish for. I wish for people to be cured of diseases or live with diseases but not have it affect the quality of their life, but that for all people, the quality of their life has improved. And that's a fundamentally different question, not that, than your question, than health insurance. Uh, the healthcare industry is not really an industry for healthcare. It's, it's something different. Our educational industry could be the industry for healthcare. But, you know, the, lately the educational industry is moving towards the healthcare type of side. I'm not saying it's going well. But, but, <laughs> <laughs> no, I know you're not. But I'm, I'm prefacing my, my main point here with that, that uh, my, uh, we have three little boys, my wife and I, and we don't have a middle child. We have a center dude, mm. right? So no middle child syndrome in my house. It's, uh, mm. he's, my, he's my center dude. And when he was in primary school, he, he went into class and the teacher sent us a picture via email of him in the middle of class. And she, she goes, you, you have to call. And it was him sitting in a meditation style in the middle of a classroom of a whole bunch of six and seven year olds. And she asked him why he started doing it because then all the kids slowly followed him. So what was pandemonium and chaos started with one child creating a settled state, if you will, at ease. And she goes, do you guys do that at home? And I think what I'm trying to say is that it starts with all of us. Mm -hmm. When I grew up in New York City, every mother and every grandmother on the block had a right to chastise you, had a right to watch you and, and, and take care of you. And now what I've seen is kind of what you're saying is that we're kind of the weird family. We want our kids to be bored, right? Because through that boredom, to find who they are. So now we have a lot of kids in the neighborhood. We have 14 kids in the neighborhood. I look at my back porch 
And I asked dad, can we get a pitcher of water? And they want paper and they're doing, check this out, they're taking Minecraft, what they did electronically and putting it, we're putting it in the real world. They're trying to, right? And so they're flipping it. And it's because we allow them to be bored. I think we've become a society, as you say, that everything's gotta be so fast and everything's so planned that we forgot the power of imagination and creativity. And that power has the power to transform not just only what we put on paper, but what we put into ourselves and how we come out. And I think that, you know, it's not, if we were looking for the insurance company, we're looking for an outside entity to solve our problems. I think you're right. It's not going to happen. No. It starts with us and starts, we purposely, my wife and I purposely have a round table at our house so that everyone has a fair say mm -hmm. on what's going on. There's no head at the table. And to me, that's important because my boys, I think in order to be true human beings, have to understand that everyone needs to be heard, including themselves. And when one is having a tough time, the others are like, well, what do you think? And that makes me proud. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it starts with us, all of us, and you know, allowing you know, our kids to find out who they are. But I'm not saying you don't have discipline. I certainly ask my oldest. Right now, I am Darth Vader of the universe <laughs> um, because um, I can't allow him to do things, things that he wants. But it's also not planning everything. And I, I think that the fast lifestyle that we have has trickled down to our kids, unfortunately. Yeah, there's no question. How could they be influenced otherwise unless they have individual epiphanies, which perhaps will be the way we get saved, uh, is in a way that there's the emergence of a new culture from some source perhaps we don't necessarily understand. But that's not necessarily something we can count on. And what we can do in the interim is to, to take charge of our own lives. And I, I do believe that, that also that empowering has a big effect on how people do as well. So I'm not saying at all that people should have less access to the things that they're used to now that they feel is really important to their own health and well-being, but that there's more to it than that. And the more to it piece, these mind, body, spiritual, community, relational pieces actually support that physical practice more than a lot of people understand at this point. And it's a show like this, it's other conversations that we could have where we hope to motivate people to give that a try. Mm -hmm. This is the alternative to living a life down a path that we sort of know doesn't end well. <laughs> you know, it ends when we look at elderly people now who are on, in, you know, in hospitals with lines and tubes in their body. The last year of life can be miserable. This is common. People are put in nursing homes. The, the, the you know, one of the ways to look at a culture is how do they take care of their young and their old. And we could, you know, mm. if we were fair with ourselves, we mm. might look and say, no, we can do a lot better than that. Yeah. And so, so could individuals. And I'd like to be an old man one day where my kids and I live together in some closer fabric where they benefit from that. It, it's an it's a act of compassion and they, they know that investment returns. That's how we could reestablish, I think, a way of living that was a lot more um, traditional in the past, a lot simpler, but it's a recipe that I think would do a lot for the world that we have now where there's just a lot of suffering and uh, people are trying the same solutions or fancier, more intense technology solutions for what I think begins in a much simpler way. We are what we do. Right. Well, I think that's a great uh, segue into our last question that we always ask everybody. Just 
can be a very quick answer, but is compassion a value of virtue or a verb in your mind and why? A value of virtue or a verb? Well, this is how I usually answer questions. I think, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just preparing you. Okay. <laughs> I think it's all of those, of course. However, you know, it depends on which lens you have on at the moment to answer that question. I think of those, though, it really needs to be put in action. So it can't be simply a concept that one understands and believes in, even, but without an execution phase, uh, an attempt to bring it into the world, especially when it comes to other people, uh, then it's, it's interesting. You know, and it may be useful to some extent, but it's not as effective mm -hmm. as when we reach out and hug somebody or we just hold space for somebody with love and loving kindness. So, it, you know, it is a value. Uh, it certainly is. Um, but I like when it's a verb. Excellent. Excellent. Dr. Michael Finkelstein and Sunraven, tell us where um, the listeners can find you. What's your website? Slowmedicine.org is the best website. Slowmedicine.org. We'll Thank you sure, so much we'll for make joining sure us. That link is in the description Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, uh, this is it. And wow, we can go on talking with you for a long time. You might I, have to have Michael. Yeah, I see me writing down a whole bunch of different things that mm -hmm. I think we can talk to. But for the listeners, we hope that today has empowered you to unleash the compassionate achiever within you to unlock success. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. And thank you.